You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This pandemic has caused the speed of science to increase dramatically. Researchers are rushing to understand this virus, develop a vaccine, and find treatments. But that speed? has consequences. Well, I think remdesivir is a good example. This is Ivan Aransky. He's the vice president of editorial at the website Medscape, and he co-founded a blog called Retraction Watch. Ivan also taught me medical reporting at New York University, where he still teaches. And that drug he mentioned, remdesivir, is a drug that's being used to treat patients with COVID-19. One of the earliest studies of the drug for coronavirus was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, a really prestigious medical journal. And it was of 61 patients, had no comparison, no control arm. The control arm is the thing that scientists use to determine whether administering a drug leads to a better outcome for patients than not receiving it. And it's got to, you know, somehow be a comparison. And maybe it's a placebo, in other words, a sort of dummy pill or something where you don't know whether you're getting it or not. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to do controls. But when there actually isn't a control, then you have no idea whether what you did actually made a difference or you got lucky and you picked the right patients who were going to do better anyway. And so if you had told me six months ago that the New England Journal of Medicine would be publishing a study of huge import with 61 patients and no control arm, I would have said, that is even too cynical for me. And so here we are. There are thousands of new coronavirus studies and results circulating in the news right now. So how worried should we be about science being conducted at warp speed because of the pandemic? And if corners are getting cut, what do you need to know to understand when journalists cover new results? I'm Ariel Dimross. This is Reset. So Ivan, if science has accelerated because of the pandemic and results are getting released really fast, is that a problem? You know, there's an old saying, right? Speed kills. And obviously, speed can be really good when you're trying to find a cure, a treatment, or find out more about a particular disease. The problem is what often gets dropped is the rigor that actually allows you to tell whether these are useful results or not. Uh, People drop things like control groups. And so when you have things like that, you have small studies, you have peer review, which is Again, supposed to be a process where a couple different experts really vet the research. That's happening much more quickly. So even if they're the right experts, and by the way, that doesn't always happen here because those experts are swamped with tons and tons of requests, you end up having things happen so quickly. And, you know, I know that I don't do my best work when I'm rushed. And I I just don't think it's unreasonable to assume that that's also true for science. So, Ivan, how bad is it? Are all these studies bad or is it just a few? 
We don't really know yet, and it's sort of a trailing indicator, but we have seen uh, eight different studies retracted for different reasons, um, mostly not to do with misconduct or fraud, sometimes error, sometimes what looks like censorship by the Chinese government. It's really too hard to tell because typically you'd need to really pour over a study and see what was wrong. You know, what we do know is that a lot of studies seem to contradict each other, which frankly is how science works, except that it's being maybe amplified and being given a megaphone so that it feels like, and it probably feels like this to scientists as well, but certainly to the general public, as though we don't really have a lot of inside, you know, information about what's going on here. One particular example that got a lot of attention is what's known as the Santa Clara study. This was done by researchers at Stanford, and it tried to look at seroprevalence. In other words, the rate of positive tests for antibodies in Santa Clara County. And when they did that, they found a much higher rate than had been found in most other studies. So that, you know, raised some red flags. And plus, since it was so different from most studies, that made people question what are they really looking at. And what we've learned since is that a lot of strange things happened with this study, and it's come under a lot of scrutiny, particularly from some really good reporting from Stephanie Lee at BuzzFeed. And she has uncovered all sorts of things. It turns out that uh, the CEO of JetBlue was involved in, oh, very involved in the study in terms of looking at what they were going to be looking at and pushing a certain test, mm -hmm. donating a small amount of money, but some money to actually do the research, which was not disclosed. So, Ivan, you mentioned the JetBlue CEO. Why would that be a problem? As we all probably know, uh, most CEOs seem to want to reopen the economy, and you can understand why. They have lots of money at stake, jobs, livelihoods, and, and all of that, and we should take that into account. However, that could introduce a bias if that's the kind of research they want, and they want research that shows that, in fact, this virus is much more common than we thought, and therefore... There are lots of people walking around who've already been exposed and aren't going to get sick or, you know, already did get sick and are fine. You know, that's going to sort of swing the calculus, if you will, maybe toward opening the country sooner and opening the economy sooner. And those are all really good questions. But if you don't disclose where the funding is coming from, or at least don't even know where the funding is coming from, it might, you know, sway the way that you end up doing your research. So to be clear, this study has not been retracted, right? The Santa Clara study? No, in fact, it hasn't even been published in the sense that it hasn't been through peer review. And usually when people say publish, it's through shorthanding for traditional peer review. Uh, this study has been posted on what's known as a preprint server, uh, which means the researchers did the work and then put it on this server without really any checks at all, some very minimal checks. Once people started reading it and critiquing it, and a lot of press coverage, by the way, here too, uh, the researchers actually, and I think to their credit, went back and redid some of their calculations, looked at their assumptions and that sort of thing, and actually have changed the study. So it's been altered, and it's very clear, it's very transparent about the fact that they've done that. But it has definitely not been retracted, no. So why is this happening? Why are scientists posting results and posting studies that haven't been peer-reviewed on preprint servers? So scientists have been doing this for a long time, actually. In physics, they've been doing it for about 30 years. Physicists in particular realized that they were basically sending around 
what we now call preprints, working papers to, you know, a few hundred colleagues and getting feedback on it. But it was all being done on paper. So then the physicists, you know, not for that reason, but for other reasons, they and their colleagues invented the Internet around that time or a little bit before that. And so they said, well, let's use the Internet for this. And what we're seeing now is that just more fields are doing this. They're embracing this uh, in fits and starts. But the two main preprint servers that are at play here uh, because of the nature of what coronavirus is are preprint servers known as BioArchive and MedArchive. And those are respectively, you know, biology, sort of life sciences, basic science, and medical science or clinical trials and things like that. Mm -hmm. So obviously those are going to be the place where if you are going to publish on something with a public health implication uh, or some kind of treatment or clinical implication, that's where you would publish them. So that's really why these have exploded in the last, you know, couple months or even couple years for other reasons. And it's actually a good thing that people, I think anyway, that, that people are getting their results out there sooner. The risk is that they don't look any different when you're a casual reader or, or a journalist or even sometimes another scientist. They don't look any different than what you'd see on a journal's website, a publisher's website, where something's been through peer review. And so that's where I think a lot of the confusion comes. And if you amplify all that, when you're looking at a, a massive public health crisis, and B, something where everybody wants scoops and everybody wants to be out there soonest and fastest and get the news out, everybody's going to be rushing. And maybe that extra layer of fact-checking that a preprint needs, because it definitely hasn't been seen by anyone but the authors, is just not being done. So it sounds like what you're saying is that scientists are now using preprint servers to get the results out there because it's a pandemic and, and there's a sense of urgency. But that means that they are also choosing to forego peer review. Well, they're choosing to forego peer review in the moment. I mean, I want to be clear that the, the goal for scientists, and this has its own problems, is to publish papers in peer reviewed journals because that's how they get you know tenure and promotions and prestige and all the rest of those things. So what they're doing is getting it out before peer review. And in fact, most of them are trying to submit these papers to peer review journals as well. They just don't want to wait for that process because even now when the process can be sped up, and this is what typically journals do during a public health crisis, it can be sped up. But usually that process takes, you know, anywhere from two weeks to, you know, several months, or even if it has to bounce around from journal to journal, you know, it can take years. The point is that, okay, it's a good thing if more information's out there. It's a bad thing if what we are just not distinguishing it from other information that has at least been through some level of vetting. And that, I think that's what we're seeing now. Ivan, what might be pushing a scientist right now to go faster than usual? I think there's a natural human tendency to try and go faster than usual when, you know, you're in the midst of a pandemic yourself. I don't know any scientists who are somehow going to be, quote unquote, immune from this virus or their families or their loved ones, etc. So, it's understandable. But what's always behind it also, and this is behind it even when we're not in the midst of a pandemic, is the need to publish or perish, the need to make a name for yourself by coming up with amazing, wonderful results. And when you know in the midst of a pandemic that the major journals, the prestigious journals that you, you know, need to publish in in order to get to the next step of your career are going to be taking papers that, you know, frankly, might have lower standards than usual. And I can point to lots of examples of that. Well, 
but that's a pretty good incentive to lower your standards and, or at least not to make them higher. But we're not just talking about science and scientists, right? We're also talking about journalism. So what do you think of the work journalists are doing right now when they're reporting on coronavirus studies? You know, I think there's a lot of really good reporting happening on studies of coronavirus. I think there's a lot of bad reporting happening on coronavirus. And my sense is that it's probably the same, more or less, ratio that you see at any given time. But with hydroxychloroquine or with any of the potential drugs or with any of this precautions or any of the studies of coronavirus, well, this can have real effects. And if what you're seeing is people reporting on individual studies, which is a problem, and they are reporting on them as if they were, you know, sort of gospel, as if they were sacrosanct, and yet the next day they report on another single study that seems to say the opposite. So that's, again, happening all the time, but now we're actually paying attention to all of it, and it has real-life consequences. So if everything is going faster and some results are getting reported on as though they've been peer-reviewed and checked, is that actually influencing policy right now? Like, are, are we seeing instances where findings that maybe aren't ready to be used to influence policy are actually being used in that way? Uh, we are seeing that. We're seeing people sort of citing papers that it turns out were retracted. We're seeing people cite papers that are, never mind preprint servers, that were just rushed through peer review that turn out to not hold up. Uh, we have the president of the United States and his sort of scientific advisors citing and referring to papers in at least, uh, you know, two different instances and three different instances that have either been withdrawn or have been seriously questioned. If you look at hydroxychloroquine, right, so this is a drug that has been used for malaria successfully for many years. It's also been used for people with uh, rheumatoid conditions like lupus, for example. They, they actually really need it. The, the science is very good there. Uh, and this has been bouncing up and down and people have you know, looked at whether it works or not. And it's all fine to test different drugs, especially if we know that they're out there already and approved for other conditions. But there really is no evidence that this works in coronavirus. And yet, for whatever reason, it ended up somehow in President Trump's Twitter feed, right? So he starts tweeting about it. Uh, people have mentioned it at his briefings. And he's now saying he's taking it. And so this has led to all sorts of things, uh, one of which was a couple in Arizona actually drinking their aquarium cleaner, their fish tank cleaner, because it included chloroquine, which is, by the way, not hydroxychloroquine, and is also incredibly toxic. There's a reason why there's big labels on your fish tank cleaner, don't drink this. If the pandemic has amplified pre-existing problems in science and science reporting, how do we fix that? That's after the break. This is Reset. There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. 
Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. Ivan Aransky, vice president of editorial for Medscape and co-founder of the blog Retraction Watch. Given everything that we've just talked about, given all of these problems, what are the solutions? So, you know, preprints are going to be preprints, and there are certainly some safeguards, and in fact, some of the preprint servers have added what what's called a quote-unquote sanity check. Like, you know, is this likely, if it's true, to, to actually, you know, be real? And uh, and also, is it likely to be dangerous, even if it is true? And, and do we want to sort of pay special attention to that? But more to the point, I think what we really need is labeling. Uh, and so if you put, as some preprint servers have started to do now, you know, big warnings and sort of big, you know, bold face type and all of that, hey, folks, this hasn't been peer reviewed. You should know that, and I would go further than that, you should know that a lot of studies just don't hold up, or you should know that uh, even if they do hold up, they turn out to be wrong in some way. Like, understand that, you know, and I think the, the problem, of course, is that we're, we're really going against the tide on that one. For, for decades, uh, journalists have really sort of, you know, emphasized this idea that if it's peer-reviewed, then it's automatically true or sort of it's got a good housekeeping seal of approval. And that's, that's a problem also for peer-reviewed studies and for peer-reviewed journals. And so those need labels too. And what would be really bad is if we sort of reflexively said, well, preprints are bad, but, you know, peer-reviewed studies are automatically good. The world is not binary. And so why would we expect for, you know, the sort of distinction between preprints and peer-reviewed studies to be binary? I run Retraction Watch. I co-founded Retraction Watch. There are 1,500 studies a year that have been through peer review that are retracted, and that's a small fraction of the number that should be. So clearly that, that process, it ain't perfect either. And if journalists sort of pay attention to all that, and instead of rushing, and look, I run a team at Medscape, I understand the pressures to get stuff posted and to get it out there and mm-hmm. to have scoops. I live on scoops. I, lo- I adore them. But <laughs> If you sort of push that and you don't do the vetting, you're going to end up getting a lot of things wrong. And that's a sort of frame that I've always thought about. And there are a lot of questions journalists can ask. And there's some basic questions about, you know, how big was this study? Was it even in humans? Did it have a comparison or control arm? Uh, Did you do any of those things? Did people drop out? And if so, do we know why? Mm. There are just a lot of basic questions like that that I actually don't think it, uh, it takes hours and hours to look through. You know, then you've got the receivers, the sort of the readers, the listeners, the viewers. I would, you know, unfortunately take with a grain of salt any story, any any item you're looking at that only relies on a single study. I wouldn't even give it a, a whole grain of salt if it it seems to rely on a single study and doesn't even link to it or tell you where it was published or where it was went online. Right. So again, I, you know, I don't typically quote Ronald Reagan for any number of reasons, but when he said, trust but verify, that's where we are right now. I think it's where we are always. But if this reminds people that we really do need to trust but verify, that's actually a pretty good outcome. Not that I wanted this coronavirus thing to happen, but if it means that people take a more careful look and that reporters do a better job and more careful job, that scientists are doing a more careful job and journals are, that isn't such a bad outcome. 
So when you see an article about the drug remdesivir and it's just a single study that's being talked about or an article about that Moderna vaccine, and again, it's just a single study that's being talked about, that's the kind of thing where you think the audience should go, okay, I'm going to take this with a grain of salt because they're not talking about multiple studies. The Moderna study is a really good example. And we all want a vaccine. I know I do. And we all want it to happen quickly. Uh, But this study that everyone got extremely excited about again, understandably, was of eight people, just eight people. You you can't tell anything from eight people. You need to probably have a study of 8,000 people or something close to that. And so, again, we're going to learn more maybe about the next eight people, maybe about the next 800 people. But until we have big numbers, we really need to curb our enthusiasm. Do you think that the speed of science right now is worth it, or should we just be telling scientists to slow down? I don't actually think it's realistic to tell people to slow down, to tell scientists to slow down. I think one thing we could do is to tell researchers, instead of 100 people, 100 different labs trying to do something, maybe, and I don't think it's good to just have one lab doing something, but maybe it's four groups of 25 labs doing something together. Because then you, you have strength in numbers, you still have some independent research happening and trying to test and sort of see whether someone else's results hold up. But what you don't have is a sort of, you know, pointillist, uh, you know, sort of very useless approach to things where everyone's just really competing and not gathering strength. You and I both love science. We make a living covering it and we've made it our jobs to understand how it works. But for someone who doesn't have that background and who's listening to this episode right now and who might feel sort of shaky about coronavirus science generally, what would you say to that person? I can understand feeling shaky about all of this. And I would, first of all, I would blame the system rather than blame science or even individual scientists or or even individual journalists. We're all under, you know, we operate under really bad incentives. We're under tremendous amount of pressure, even under typical times, if you will. So I, I would sort of say to that person, you know, skepticism is a good thing. I've always been, you know, a skeptic. Sometimes I veer into cynicism, but Cynicism really isn't a great thing because it means that you've really stopped trusting anything at all. I think that there are tons of ways to improve the system. We should pay attention to those. Uh, It doesn't mean we should throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we do need to be honest with ourselves, particularly intellectually honest with ourselves and say, hey, you know, this doesn't mean that we should weaponize every criticism and we should or weaponize every retraction or every correction or everything that goes wrong. The very fact that we can talk about these things and and actually are talking about these things and the fact that, you know, we can look and see retractions happening and corrections happening and discussion happening, that actually sets science apart from a lot of other fields. Mm. And so I know that sounds maybe even over-optimistic. Maybe I don't even sound skeptical anymore. I can assure (laughs) you I am. And I think that if we sort of channel that and say, well, how how do we learn from all that and take that as a strength? I would hope that's the frame people would see this through. Ivan Ransky is the vice president of editorial for Medscape and the co-founder of the blog Retraction Watch. Ivan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ariel. I'm Ariel Dimross, and this is Reset. We publish episodes three times a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, 
rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We'll be back on Thursday. Later, nerds. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.